The following is a sermon that was preached at Faith Lutheran Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia. For more information about our church or to hear past sermons from Faith Lutheran, visit georgiafaith.com. Thank you for listening. Why is it so hard to stand up and be counted for Christ? Well, simply because sometimes there are costs involved that are far, far dearer than just being ostracized by some secular acquaintances. I mean, Jesus told us to expect this. He said that we should count the cost of following him because there are going to be days when it's easy and there are going to be days when it's hard. But he said for his followers, whether it's easy or hard, he calls on you and me to stand up and be counted for Christ. It's hard to imagine how much life changed for the three men in our reading for today. I mean, they had, uh, they had had everything going for them. They had been born into privilege, into nobility, maybe into the royal family, these young men. They had everything. They were young, they were rich, they were smart, they were handsome. Right? They were connected with the upper circles of power and the people, the families who ran the nation of Judah. If these guys lived today, their Instagram would be filled up with pictures like influencers and like hashtag Lambo. Right? These are the kind of young people we're talking about. Everything was great for them until the day an enemy army crashed into Jerusalem. Babylon had come. Many thousands died. These three, well, they were spared for an odd reason. The Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, he always was looking out for talent. And so he told his people during the conquest of Jerusalem, look, look for people of talent from the nobility, from the ruling families. Look for young men who have promise, who are smart, who are handsome. So these young men, they, they had their lives spared, but they were taken from Jerusalem off into exile to, to Babylon, the center of the empire. Now, as far as being a prisoner of war goes, they, they came out pretty well because, you know, he wanted to pull people of talent out and train them for work in the Babylonian government. So these guys, instead of being slaves working in the field, well, they went to government school for three years to learn how to be administrators in this Babylonian empire. And it didn't take long for everyone to be able to tell that these three guys were ten times smarter than all the other administrators. They ended up being, becoming administrators in the provinces of Babylon. The king took notice of them. Well, so did everybody else. They didn't just get positions of privilege, they also got enemies. People who are uh, jealous, certainly. But you know, maybe their jealousy was piqued, especially because these three men, well, they acted differently than everybody. They ate different food. They dressed a different way. They worshipped a God that they said was the only true God. They didn't worship any of the Babylonians' God whatsoever. Whatever it was, these enemies and their jealousy grew. The more influence these three young men had, the more opposition they were going to face. Now, think about these young guys and the change in their world that happened when they went from Jerusalem to Babylon, right? When they were in Jerusalem... They were in a place where faith was at the center of life. 
faith in the one true God of Israel. There was the temple, the priesthood, all the cultural institutions, all, the, all of society meant to encourage people in the one true faith and the one true God. That was Jerusalem. Then all of a sudden they woke up one day and they're in Babylon. Completely different. Faith no longer at the center. Faith is on the margins. It's not a society that sees one true God, but a a society that's filled with pluralism, saying there's all sorts of different gods. You just worship whatever god you want. Whatever god feels real to you is real to you. It was a was a, was a city, a culture that didn't enforce or encourage faith in the one true God. In fact, it It discouraged it as it pushed it to the margins. So a society that went, or they went from a society that was centered on the one true God to one where it's a pluralistic, secular world, where faith in the one true God is marginalized. Does that sound at all familiar? Because I've got to tell you what, um, dropped off my daughter at college this weekend, the society into which my children will launch and leave the nest into is a very different culture and society than the one in which my parents grew up. As different as Jerusalem and Babylon. We live in an increasingly post-Christian culture here in America. Or maybe the America my parents grew up in, you could assume people had faith in the true God you could assume that Christian morality or Christian values were a given. That was Jerusalem. Your children, my children, you as a young person, all of us, we're not living in Jerusalem anymore. We're living in Babylon. You know, how do you, how do you stand up and be counted for Christ when you're living in a post-Christian world? How do you stand up and be counted for Christ when you find yourself not in the middle of Jerusalem but in the middle of Babylon? Because i got to tell you, that's the world in which we live and it's going to become more Babylonian by the minute. Well, I'll tell you this. In this post-Christian culture, if you are willing to stand up and be counted for Christ, you're going to likely encounter two arguments, at least, from people who are non-Christians that they would take issue with your stance. Uh, the first one I usually hear would be something like this. Uh, can, you, can you really believe that your religion is the right one and everyone else is wrong? It, it's, usually, uh, it's usually advanced in the name of tolerance, that we should be tolerant of all religions now that we're in Babylon. And if you believe in your religion that the other religions aren't correct, how is that tolerant at all? Now, of course, I say that's under the guise of tolerance because... This is a strange kind of tolerance that says you can believe in whatever you want as long as it's not what you currently believe. Don't do that. you got to believe what you believe in the way I define it for you. That's number one. The second argument you usually get if you stand up and be counted for Christ in a Babylon society is uh, they take issue with the presence of suffering or evil in the world. A non-believer would say, How can you believe that there's an all-powerful and all-good God, and yet there is suffering and evil in the world? Those two things are are completely contradictory. If your God is all-powerful and all-good, why wouldn't he just end all suffering? Or if there's suffering, how can your God be all-powerful and all-good? 
the exclusivity of salvation in Christ and the presence of suffering in the world, those are the two things that an unbeliever would charge you with if you stand up and want to be counted for Christ. Well, just like our culture today is so similar to the Babylonian culture in which these three young men find themselves, the account of these young men can inform us and the way in which we can stand and be counted for Christ even in the middle of a Babylonian world. Remember the context. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. He had quickly amassed this large empire, lots of cities, lots of states, lots of people worshiping, lots of gods. You can worship whatever gods you want, but, but everybody's going to bow down to this one that I made. It's kind of a national cohesion sort of thing. If everybody can just bow down to this one idea, uh, you can keep whatever gods you want of your own, but bow down to this one. They had a dedication of that great big statue of gold when the music played. And the Bible says, everybody bowed down and worshiped this image the king set up. Interestingly, the three young men weren't mentioned in the day of dedication. And I think that tells us something that informs us of the way in which we can stand up for Christ in the uh, middle of a post-Christian world. Those three young men, you know what they did? They just didn't attend. They didn't go. One way to, uh, to stand up for Christ in the middle of a post-Christian world is to simply live the Christian life as God's called you to. Quietly, simply, live as God's asked of you in the midst of an unchristian world. You don't see them making demonstrations in the street. You don't see them filling up their Twitter feed with terrible rants and about how the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You don't see them flinging accusations at people who don't happen to agree with them. They just didn't attend. They quietly lived their Christian life. Here's the thing. Uh, when we stand up and be counted for Christ, that means quietly living the Christian life right until the moment God asks you to live it loudly. Right, these guys, even when they uh, were brought before the king and he's, he's uh, questioning them, they said, you know, we don't have a need to defend ourselves in this. We're, we're not going to get defensive. We're just going to live our Christian life. And the Christian life there was not bowing down to this God. They, they started out by just not attending this, but the enemies they had were not going to let that get away. No, they made sure the king found out that these guys thought they were different. These guys thought they were different, and the king brings them in one last chance with the furnace heated hotter than usual. Think of the dilemma these men faced. They were, they were going to lose everything. I mean, their positions, their, their wealth, their lives, their family. You know, when you have a lot to lose... Um, it's easy to start making excuses, isn't it? Like if you know the cost of standing up for Jesus, it's easy to start rationalizing why maybe we don't have to live quite as much of a Christian life, right? Like you, you know what God says about sex and marriage. You know it. But you also know if you live the Christian life, you might, might lose that relationship. You know that Christians don't act the way you've been acting, but whether it's selfishness or, or 
an opportunity to do things that you just wanted to do. You don't want to give up the things you know you should give up. You know what the Bible says about all sorts of social issues when it comes to human sexuality or any of these other things, but you, but you know that if you speak God's words, you might be labeled as intolerant. When you have a lot to lose, it's easy to start rationalizing why maybe we don't need to stand up quite so tall. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I, I wonder what was going through their mind. It would have been easy to rationalize, right? Like, uh, you know, guys, we, all we really have to do is bow down to the thing. That, who will know if we're worshiping it? Really? Let's just bow down. I mean, think about if, how much good we can do as administrators of Babylon, how much good we can do for the people of God. Wouldn't it just be better for us to just stay alive? When the cost is high, rationalizations come easy. That's why I think these young men are such an amazing example for us because their costs were everything, but yet they stood up and were counted with Christ. They said to the king, our God can save us from whatever you might do. Our God is strong enough even to save us from a fiery furnace. This is a truth that we Christians profess, that God is strong enough to save you from any persecution. He is. Here's the thing. God, uh, you know, he's strong enough to, uh, I don't know, change your workplace to make it more tolerant of Christianity. He is. He is strong enough to preserve your relationship if you commit to pure and chaste living. He is strong enough to preserve your reputation even if you speak the truth in love to people who don't want to hear it. He's strong enough to do all of those things. But the most important words these young men said when they were talking to the king, they said, but even if he does not, we still won't bow down to your God. Even if he does not. That's a central truth of being a disciple of Jesus. We stand up and we are counted with him because we know he has the power to protect us from persecution, but we're going to stand with him even if he does not. Let me say it a different way. Um, God, has, God can save you from persecution. God can also save you through it. When you stand up and are counted for Christ, sometimes there are costs involved. If you say no to sex outside of marriage, you might lose that relationship. If you uh, stand up to, uh, for honesty and integrity in your workplace, you might miss out on that promotion. If you speak truth and love, you might be labeled intolerant. Here's the thing these three young men knew, though. They knew and understood that the most important thing in this life is not a relationship or a job or even staying alive. They knew that the most important thing is the God who stood with them. Hands bound, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. But they weren't alone. What do you think Nebuchadnezzar saw that made him react that way? There's a fourth one. He looks like a son of the gods. I don't know, was, was the fourth guy, was he huge? Did he glow with light? I'm hard to tell in a fiery furnace. I don't know what it was that Nebuchadnezzar saw that made him say that, but I absolutely know who it was that Nebuchadnezzar saw. 
This is the Son of God in the furnace come to save those men. I think the most interesting question here is, why did God do it this way? Right? I mean, think of all the ways God could have saved these men from the furnace. He could have popped them out of there, instantly made them reappear on the, you know, on the dais next to Nebuchadnezzar. That would have been pretty impressive. Right? He could have had them fly out of the furnace like superpowers, right? Or superheroes. That also would have been equally impressive, but he doesn't do that. Why does he do this? Instead, the angel of the Lord goes into the furnace with them to save them. Well, it's an answer to that second question people ask when they see suffering and they say, where's your God? The answer is, he's in the furnace. This was God's plan from the garden that God would descend into our darkness, enter into our brokenness and pick up our infirmities and carry our sorrows and suffer with us in all of the furnaces of our life so that he might point us ahead to the day when he will make right everything that now is wrong. Here's the thing. Christians suffer too. You might get cancer. You might suffer tragedy or sadness. But you won't be in the furnace alone. Because Christ stood in the furnace with you, you can know that suffering does not mean that God is absent. It just means that instead when we suffer, we become more like our Savior who suffered with us and for us. You know how the story ends, right? God saves him so completely you can't even smell smoke on him. Um, God did that for them to give hope to you and to me on the days that we have to say, even if he does not. He did that to let you know that standing with him will never leave you in a place where he doesn't want you to be. Never. He did that to let you know that the God who saves from a fiery furnace is waiting to bring a blessed end to every story in your life too. Some of them will come sooner, some later. But this is the God who stood with you when no one else would, when no one else could. So stand up and be counted for Christ. Amen.